Comic Book Club News gives you the comic book news you need to know first thing in the morning every weekday in the form of digestible three to five minute long podcasts. Comic Book Club News recaps breaking news stories from Marvel, DC Comics, and beyond Monday through Friday. New episodes drop 6 a.m. ET in the Comic Book Club News feed so they're ready for you when you're ready for the day. Comic Book Club News. You hear it second or third, possibly fourth. Welcome to Marvel Vision, a podcast about Marvel, the MCU, Marvel-related products, and other things, <laughs> wow. including, well, right now, Spider-Man Stretch. Across the Spider-Verse. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. And, yeah, we're going to jump right into spoilers, pretty much, for Across the Spider-Verse. So if you haven't seen it in theaters, though, it seems like everybody in the world has seen it in theaters this weekend. Uh, definitely turn away, because we're going to go full spoilers. We're going to have a wide-ranging discussion about what we thought about the so movie. So wide-ranging. We're going to start at the beginning of time. Spiders, how did they exist and why? And we're going to start When did they there. meet, man? Uh, But yeah, uh, obviously uh, We're not going to go through the whole plot We're not going to go beat by beat But we're definitely going to talk about our impressions about the movie And the reason I was a little glib here At the beginning is technically Technically the purview of our podcast Is the Marvel Cinematic Universe And this is a Sony Animated movie So technically it shouldn't be part of the MCU Except it totally is Arguably the most exciting part of the MCU. <laughs> yeah, potentially. Uh, but before we get to that, I do always like to talk about this first because I think this really affects your impressions of the movie. Uh, Justin, what was your experience seeing this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Uh, my experience was I had a ticket to go on Friday. I could only had this like two-hour and 45-minute window before I had to go pick up my children at school. And um, I was going to the movie theater and I it's summer in New York City in Brooklyn. I hit a street where they just was a truck turning around and it took like 15, 18 mm-hmm. minutes. Uh, so I was just stuck there losing it. Got into the movie theater, Alamo Drafthouse. And they were like, you, sir, are too late. The kindest nerd man was like. <laughs> Just very gently being like, I can't allow you in here, sir. It was like gripping a Charles Dickens novel or something. Oh, man. Uh, like a real, like a heavy book. I will give you a rain check. Would you like a rain check? And I was like, yes. So instead, I saw it today with my seven-year-old and four-year-old squirming the entire time. So I've had very intense experiences uh, on both sides, not seeing it and seeing it. But I will say... Still loved it. There you go. Uh, I've seen it twice now, actually. I wow. saw it earlier this week at a press screening, which I will say was a surprisingly lively press screening. Usually they're pretty mm. dead. Nobody's reacting to stuff. There wasn't like the biggest reactions in the world, but there definitely people that were they were actually laughing at things, which is always nice to hear. Sometimes they're very curmudgeonly about it and uh, generally enjoyed it. My big thing is I was sitting all the way on the side and we'll probably get into this. I, w- I would love to actually talk about this right off just while we're going uh, with the theatrical experience. But seeing that first time, I was like, oh, I really got to see this again. 
again, like sitting in the center, because clearly sitting on the side is messing my, up my experience with the sound. The sound's weird, particularly at the beginning in the Gwen Stacy narration. I was like, ah, I can't really hear it. Obviously, it's hard to understand what Hobie Brown is saying anyway, but like it was hard to hear him. Mm. And there were different points in the movie. I was like, OK, I got to go to a theater where I'm not all the way on the side there. So spontaneously, because we had this whole like separate family things going on, we decided, and I know this was a stupid thing to do, but we decided to meet in Times Square uh, to oh go see it. So we ended up seeing, Reckless. yeah, with my eight-year-old and my 13-year-old at like uh, four, 545 showing mm-hmm. at the AMC Empire 25 in Times Square. And oh, the heart of New York City, the heart of New York City, where you really feel the New Yorkers. And there's a couple of things going on here. One, if you've never been to the AMC Empire 25, it's a pretty typical. Like, first of all, it's usually one of the most highest grossing movie theaters in the country, mostly yeah. because they have 25 screens. But also they're packing the stuff constantly with tourists and people who are just wandering through. There's people on their phones, but they're also being loud and rowdy. There was a whole row behind me that was clearly vaping the entire time. Sick. So, it was pretty sweet, and my kids loved it. Your kids um, love secondhand vape. They do. They were getting so high there. Uh, but, like, on the positive end of the spectrum with it, very rowdy. And there was some fun stuff. Like, there was a row of women behind, uh, in front of me who, every time Miguel O'Hara turned around, they were, like, snickering and giggling at his butt and pointing at his butt. So that was that was fun. I had a good time. Nice. It felt like I was seeing a Magic Mike movie or something. Uh, mm. And people were screaming and losing their minds. And like, oh, is that is that spectacular Spider-Man? Oh, my God, that's the Insomniac Spider-Man. Like, so, you know, it was a very interactive crowd. Wow, that was nice. So very fun. People lost their minds at the end of the movie, screaming and shouting and just like the biggest reaction ever. The thing that marred it for me, and this is a very particular experience, is my son really doesn't like huge, loud noises in movies. And as soon Mm. as that happened, uh, I was, like, giggling because I was enjoying everybody screaming and being like, no, what's happening? Why is this to be companion? And I looked over at him, and he was holding his ears and shaking and sobbing and tears pouring down his face. Oh, no. Because it was so loud and he was so shocked. It was also like an hour past his bedtime at this point. So I had to pick him up and take him out very quickly and spent the next like the entire length of the end credits just calming him down and soothing him and whatever. So that marred the experience a little bit, but two very different experiences seeing the movie in terms of audiences. But that segues into the next thing I want to talk about, but I'm curious to hear from you. This has been an overall issue, which I thought, again, was my press screening, but it cropped up again in this second, just like public screening that I saw. I've seen people talk about it all over the sound mix. There are Mm -hmm. things that are very, very low in it that don't seem to be playing correctly. Phil Lord, who's one of the co-writers of the movie, one of the executive producers and seen as one of the main drivers behind it, along with Chris Miller, is sending out stickers to people being like, hey, I played Spider-Verse in a seven, which if people don't know, and he's explained this very helpfully on Twitter, a seven is sort of the standard level of sound that you want to put something at, particularly like in Dolby theaters, but in other theaters as well. So he's encouraging people to get there early and set up the right sound. But I think even with the right sound setting, it's still a little all over the place. Like there's stuff that is very low in the mix 
Yeah. And uh, I'm curious, did you have the same experience or going to, I guess, the Alamo Draft House? Was it fine for you across the Well, board? we actually saw it at the Cobble Hill Cinema in, uh, 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 in Carroll Gardens, small theater. So, yeah. like, very not worried about a lot of other noise from other movie theaters or anything like that. So, very chill. I will say, because I, I heard about this issue before I saw the movie. And having also just watched the first movie yesterday with my kids to prep for this Mm -hmm. one, um, I actually think it it was there a bit in the first one. I think just Gwen talks softly. Mm-hmm. The, the way the performance is and maybe she's a low talker yeah, she's a low talker very um huge seinfeldian energy uh so i i do think like it's part of the character i think and maybe not like a some sort of mistake in the mix kind of thing mm-hmm. it also though sounds like based on uh the turn it try to get it at seven it feels like they were watching the movie really loud and so everything was easier to hear when they were screening it and prepping it and and working on it and now they're like oh no these theaters are putting it at a normal volume <laughs> yeah what, what have we done um, it i did i didn't find any of it incomprehensible i do think spider punk was a little purposefully there's mm-hmm. a couple of jokes about him being hard to understand with the thickness of the accent and some of the uh, sort of vernacular he was using so i feel like that was a choice yeah, and, and that's the thing, the theory that I've been playing around with a little bit, because everything is so purposeful and calculated in the movie. It's so meticulously planned out with the dialogue and the plot and visually and everything for them to be like, yeah, sound mix, don't worry about it. Sounds insane to me. So, uh, again, with the two points that I mentioned, it feels to me like if you have Gwen, particularly at the beginning of the movie, is trying to drown out her thoughts with her drums, maybe that's why you can't hear her narration, right? Like, they're basically, they're purposefully downloading, uh, downplaying the sound from her dialogue. And then same thing for Hobie. Like we're saying, you're not supposed to understand him, so they play up the music. There's other times of the movie as well where it feels like they're playing around and experimenting with Sonically, I think, where they're, like, yeah. putting the action and the dialogue lower than the music on purpose and not because it's a mistake that they made when they were delivering the sound mix. Yeah. It feels like uh, a, you know, TikTok forward way of viewing things because that's <laughs> the way it is. You don't, you're not listening to much dialogue on TikTok. You're reading it on the screen while you're listening to music. That's yeah. Being played. Uh, we haven't said, though, what we thought of the movie, so we should probably mention that now. Justin, what do you think? Uh, I thought it was amazing. The the blending of art styles. I mean, this we, maybe it's sort of more galactically. Like, we talk about how there, there's this panic in the industry about, like, no one's comic book movies are going away. It's the only thing that people go out and see, and if they're not making money anymore, what is the movie industry going to do? And I think this movie proves, and I think will prove with the box office they take in, that like it's not that comic book movies are bad. It's just that the ones we've seen lately are so derivative that they're not exciting anymore. Because when a movie like this comes out that is exciting, that is nonstop huge swings, that is breaking the formula for a comic book movie in like four different ways. And it's just, it feels like real people. It feels like, Mm -hmm. I know, you know, we talk about like in Ant-Man, none of the actors look like they're in the same room. And in this, the actors are also probably not in the same room because they're voiceover. (laughs) But it is it is written in a way that is like the dialogue feels like people deals like how real people talk. 
uh, the, it take, it doesn't over explain things. It trusts the audience to just follow what's happening. The swings with the art blending different art styles in most movies, when you, an animated movie, you see something live action, it's like, Whoa, they like, it's like a big record scratch joke. And this, they're just like, Hey, we got some live action in there. It's cool. Be cool. This whole vibe of this movie is like, Hey, be cool. This is fun. Mm-hmm. You're at a fun party. Enjoy it. We don't have to point at everyone and be like, look, Brett's here. It's just like, no, I mean, cool. Brett's here. Well, to that point, I mean, I think that was my big takeaway with this movie is it's about the characters and it's about the characters first. You know, I I think there's two very comparable movies in different ways that we could talk about here. One, in terms of what you were addressing in terms of superhero fatigue, we talked about the same thing with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And the reason that worked and the reason that continues to work at the box office is it's about the characters, it's about the people you care about, and it's diving into their emotions and pushing them forward, and that's what's hooking people in beyond spectacle, beyond big action sequences, beyond being like, ooh, how does this tie into the greater MCU or anything like that? Even more so with this movie where it ties into basically every Spider-Man movie and every Spider-Man yeah. TV show and video game. And there's like the cameo for the bodega owner from Venom and things like that. Like those and are all comic the- books, very specific comic book covers, mm-hmm. characters, moments like it touches every aspect Anything with Spider-Man in it shows up in this movie. Well, and the other movie that I was going to compare it to that I think is a very obvious comparison is Spider-Man No Way Home, which uh, soured was probably too strong a word, but definitely more times I've seen that, the more I'm like, yeah, this is this is okay. But the first time Mm. seeing it in the movie theater and the thing that works still about that movie is it keeps it very focused on Tom Holland's Spider-Man. It's about his emotional journey and what's happening to him with all the stunt of bringing in Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire in there, as well as all the villains and everything else and all the references. Here, it's that times one million is happening, but it's all about Miles, it's all about Gwen, and it's all about the people around them, and that's it. Like, and you care about these people and what's going to happen to them. The biggest cliffhangers are at the end of the movie aren't necessarily the twists. It's about like, oh my God, what's going to happen to Miles? Is he going to get back to his universe? What's going to happen to Gwen? Is she being, she get, puts together this team? And there was screaming so loud in my theater when they put together the team, and I feel like that's less about like, cool, we get to see Spider-Pig again, and Spider-Man Noir, then, oh, these people, Spider-Ham, sorry. Uh, Spider-Pig is from the Simpsons movie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He'll Uh, probably be there. He'll be there. I don't care about the stuff. I don't really watch these superhero movies. I stick to like A24 stuff mostly. Oh, cool. Wow, you've changed. Yes, I have. A24 Uh, vision. Anyway, my point being that like I think they're reacting less to that. Like, yes, these people that we love who are granted animated characters are together and they're doing the right thing. They're going to help. And that's what we hook into here beyond all the spectacle. Well, in this movie, like, has big Empire Strikes Back energy where it's like a lot of, like, revelations, a lot of our main character being like, well, everyone's screwed me over. (laughs) So I guess I'll have to figure this out on my own. Like, a lot of, like, claiming your identity, which was really cool. Um, so, and, and also like very much a cliffhanger, but in this movie, all of the beats of this movie are brought to, to a close emotionally. 
And it's just we're left with this huge thing that he's in the wrong universe and uh, wrong dimension and he's meeting himself who's a villain potentially here. So that's great. And honestly, the theater I was in, a lot of kids there, sort of middle middle school-y kids, not happy about the To Be Continued, did not know about the To Be Continued. We're like, mm-hmm. what? A lot of moms being like, I'm really sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of <laughs> you, apologies. You have been uh, reading the trades. It was originally supposed to be a part one and part two, and then they changed it to do different. I don't know why you don't know this, Charles. Yeah. I talked to all the little Charlies out there and explained to them the movie business as it is, um, how shooting, making both movies simultaneously actually saves a little bit on budgetary concerns. But they didn't, weren't having it. They were upset. Uh, but I think it... it makes for there's been a lot of movies that do the to be continued so i think there's a little fatigue for that in Mm -hmm. the the current uh, like cultural space but this was a very well done version of it and i thought uh, i'm on board totally agree with you particularly given that the focus is on the emotional arcs like i was saying just before of miles and gwen it's not that those are done because like I want to say constantly on this podcast, superheroes are forever a story, but also this is like going to continue and they're going to continue to grow in the next movie. But Gwen very specifically starting with that extended sequence, if we're talking about like, I'm alone. I don't, I don't have a band. I don't want to be in a band. I don't want to be a group to joining this group because she has to, because she has to leave her home, to ultimately forming the bad to be the leader of the bad by the end, that completes this part of her emotional journey. And same thing with Miles, where he thinks he knows what he wants, he thinks he knows what he needs, but ultimately realizing that he is his own person and he doesn't need anybody to tell him what to do, it's part of how he is growing up. And and I think that's my... Biggest takeaway for the movie for the first time, for the second time. Um, we in between that, I also watched Into the Spider Verse with my kids two nights ago, I guess, or something like that. Um, and I was really struck by how much they clearly way lean into the first movie is like Miles is young and he's naive, and it's all about like, yeah. wow, I can be a hero. And it's this very earnest, funny, brighter movie. This one, the emotions, the things that he's dealing with are so much, not even darker, but just more complicated. There's so much going on there that he needs to grapple with over the course of the movie. And I think it, it, the the choice there and the point of it feels like it's like you're at that age. He's at that age where you you realize like, oh, your parents aren't always right. Oh, the world doesn't actually work the way we think it is where good people do well and bad people suffer the consequences of their actions. And you can see here where he he is betrayed a little bit by the people around him, where it doesn't go as cleanly as it could. So, it, you know, that's a common theme, but it's really well done here. And it's done in a surprising way. It's not a rejection of his parents because his parents are right the whole time. In fact, mm-hmm. his mom's advice is what saves him and drives him and makes him get through this. And it's all about then saving his dad and ending up on this in this dimension where his dad is the one that died and his uncle lived and it's a much darker place. Like there's all these great ideas in here. And in watching the first Spider-Verse, I was like, it's crazy they got this movie made. The, the plot, if you don't if you don't just sit for the ride, if you're like an exec, you'd be like, what? It's so complicated. <laughs> What's happening? We keep resetting and introducing new spider people with new mm-hmm. origins. Like It is just w- wildly structured. I mean, it, it works. It's amazing. And the fact that they were able to carry through those swings, not replicate the formula, but break out a whole new formula, start with Gwen, 
uh, and when in the first one, we it's sort of like a Peter to Miles baton mm-hmm. pass. This, it's like a Gwen to Miles to Gwen to like setting up this final probably ensemble movie or it's like a Miles and Gwen like mm-hmm. a two-hander movie is would be my reading the tea leaves and going into the next one. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that we can talk about in terms of speculation for the next movie. But getting to what you were just saying, just in terms of the wild difference here, I think in a very similar way and certainly, you know, Oscar dominate one best picture, uh, best animated feature, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so. having that probably helps a little bit as well as just like generally being a beloved movie, but I am stunned and all of these sequences work, but like doing an animated movie that ostensibly you're like, Oh yeah. Animated movies. They're for kids where there's an extended sequence where it's just, characters hanging out at a rooftop party and talking about cake for a while and having these really intense emotional scenes. That's wild. Like, and it works. It's gorgeous and it's intense and it's emotional. It's beautiful. And I do think it, like we're saying, connects with kids in the same way that it connects with adults because you're like, oh yeah, my parents maybe don't know what they're talking about. You get like light romance stuff with Gwen, which obviously is very intense, but not like, played over the top in any way uh, that feels really real. So you have all of these moments where they're allowed to be human characters. Yeah. There's points what I thought a lot about, Oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. Guy who did before sunset and before sunrise and Richard, the Linklater. Actor, Ethan, oh, Linklater, no, Richard yeah. Linklater, who does the rotoscoped stuff. Like, yeah. Uh, not waking was it waking life was that the thing uh, waking life yeah yeah waking life and a couple of other things so there's moments when it's just like it feels like a richard linkladder movie almost yeah. instead of a spider-man movie and i don't think that's to its detriment no it, because it feels like we're just riding along with these people that there's no point where i'm like oh now i, I see the structure now this now the villain's gonna show up here because you're just like it's like you're watching a documentary in a crazy superhero universe where they are rotoscoped. Where you're like, oh no, he's got to go here now. Oh, he's late for his party. Now he's now they're at the party. Why do they go back to the party when they just were away? But they Gwen and Miles go back out of costume, and their parents. I was like, I don't know why they did that, but they just did it, and it was cool because that's what we needed to happen at that yeah. point. Uh, so it, it it does feel like super authentic, and it also feels like it's such a blender of emotions and action and all that. Which, again, feels like when you're at that age where you're like, what's happening in my life? Mm-hmm. I'm in school. I'm going, through, I'm going through puberty. I love these people. I love my family. But also I hate them. I have to go do this other stuff. Like, it's just a mix. That's uh, – and I think I touched on this a little bit before, but that's to me really what what they're getting at here is this idea of like Into the Spider-Verse is he's young. He's earnest. He's – his whole, his emotions are like, oh, what's my life going to be? And here he is dealing with this cauldron of emotions that involves romance and parents and future and all of these other things. And so you end up with a longer movie, a more complicated movie, a, a slightly more serious movie. I mean, one thing my eight-year-old pointed out is like, eh, it wasn't as funny as the first movie. And I was like, you're right. It's not. Truth. And I think that's because like, it isn't a goof matron necessarily at this point in his life. There's some things that like you're feeling so deeply in terms of your emotions. And that comes out uh, throughout the character and throughout the plot. And one thing also that I wanted to mention there at the same time, 
that this is almost the magic trick of this movie, the way they pulled it off is like, that's the big theme. But then there's so many other very important things that I think they're dealing with at the same time. Two that I'd call out uh, in particular, um, one is, and this is my interpretation of it, but a lot of the stuff in particular that Miguel is telling Miles later on felt to me like what comic book fans said about Miles when he was introduced. The idea that, like, you don't belong, you're not canon, yeah. it's supposed to be Peter Parker, you don't belong here, you were never supposed to be Spider-Man. And they don't, like put too much of a hat on it necessarily when they're doing it, but instead it feels like they thought about this is what these people said, what does that mean if you confront Miles with those ideas in the course of this movie, in the course of Miles' life, and really throw that at him? Uh, I, I don't know if you got that as well. Yeah, no, definitely because I, I guess I didn't I didn't make the connection to fandom of saying that, but I just really loved that as a theme for Miles, like the revelation that they did not dwell on it. Like you were never supposed to be Spider Man. There's a world where there isn't one because you got that bite, and him being like suffering from that, feeling that sort of heroic guilt of being like, oh no, what did I do? When he's like, he doesn't know anything about any of that. <laughs> And then he ends up to have him end up there and see the consequences. And like, I think we're, that's going to end up playing into the next one a lot, next movie a lot, I think, because that's literally where he ends up. But just from a perspective of like, again, like being a person or being a kid, it's like, I don't belong here. Like imposter syndrome, all of that Mm -hmm. is just like right there. Yeah. The other one that I wanted to call out, and this is a popular theory that I've seen bubbling around on the internet a bit, and I think it's a really good one. It certainly colored my viewing of the movie the second time through, is the idea that Gwen might be trans. And Mm -hmm. there's little things there that showed up in the trailer that people glommed onto, and it sparked this whole, like, stupid, as usual, conservative outrage, where in her room she has a Protect Trans Kids sticker very prominently behind her, uh, right above her door. Um, But she also has a pin on her jacket at one point. I think it's during the dance, though I could be wrong about that, when she has the flashback. She's wearing a trans pin. So that could just be support, but There's a couple of other things there that I think do point evidence in that direction without, again, putting too much of a point on it. Uh, The biggest one is that all the colors in her dimension are the colors of the trans flag. And so I think that's probably a very purposeful choice to at least tip things in that direction. But I also think her arc with her father with... Captain Stacy, there's a very good argument to be made that that is the arc of what some trans teenagers go through in terms of coming out to their parents and their parents being like, I don't know what this means. Yeah. What what is going on with you? You are my daughter. You are my son, whatever you are. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. You're, you're wrong. Come over here, put your hands up, etc. And then Trans kids very frequently running away at this point. That scene when she comes back, that whole conversation feels like a, this is who I am. You need to accept me for who I am. And then ultimately Captain Stacy coming around to that. 
whether it is or not, whether Gweta is or not, trans or not, I almost think like it doesn't matter unless it matters to you as a viewer. It's more about the power of superhero storytelling and the thing that constantly draws us back to it, that it can be these metaphors for things and you can read it in there. And it's a way of talking about these issues and concerns and feelings and emotions through a lens that, you know, potentially some father or mother who is grappling with like my teenager just told me they're trans what does that mean come to see this movie and maybe they understand it like maybe they they don't understand why they understand it better but they do just by seeing the movie well and that's what i like it as a metaphor for whatever the secret or the identity thing that you are or have and that you want to put out into the world uh it, it, whatever it is i think it, it works on any level if if they if they go that route from a storytelling perspective with Gwen, I think that's great. Um, I didn't pick up on that particularly. I just picked up on the it as the metaphor of like showing your parents or showing your the your loved ones in your life what you truly are and the risk of that. And she's like she suffers for for exposed for showing who she truly is to her her dad, and then he ends up uh, coming back around, and it's a great moment. It's a great arc, and she goes and and finds acceptance in another place. But I think she knows at the end of the day that she needs to come back and, and figure out her, the close people in her life. And that happens with Miles as well. And I think uh, Miguel reject, it's a little bit different because it's his dealing with a loss in the same way that Kingpin was in the first movie mm-hmm. uh, and doing, dealing with it the wrong way, but he refuses to accept the situation that he's found himself in. And instead forces his like outlook on the rest of the world. And I think that's sort of the other side of the metaphor uh, that we're talking about, no matter what example of identity we're using. And I think at the, in the, at the end of the day, in the next movie, it's going to be proven that this canon forcing the canon and forcing people mm-hmm. to go through these traumas isn't what needs to happen <laughs> to protect their universe. It's just what he thinks. It's what has happened in the past. And we don't need to accept the past. We don't need to be conservative in our understanding of the world. We can find new ways because you don't know that that's the way it goes. You just think that because you can't get out of your, the way of your own self. Well, and to take this a little bit of a step further, I haven't necessarily thought this through because it's only occurred to me now during the discussion. But I think there's potentially something to be said if we're talking about this age divide. Miguel is older, right? And so when you get a little older, you've been through all of these experiences before or similar experiences. You're like, well, that's not going to work out. I've already done that. That's not going to work out for you. That's how it always goes. Uh, This ties into another thing that um, I'm I'm not 100% sold on this, but I do think this is an interesting interpretation that's been bouncing around. The idea that particularly with Miguel and Jessica Drew, these are two characters of color who are older than the other characters. So Mm. the idea of characters of color, uh, these people of color who are older being like, don't rock the boat. Just this is going to go wrong if you do this the wrong way. If you do this out of the way that we've already learned how to do it and we know how to do it, horrible things are going to happen. The entire world is going to be wrecked and be destroyed. So just like stay the course and go forward. And then you have younger characters like Miles, very specifically of color, who are like, he says in the movie, like, nah, I'm going to do my own thing, you know? Yeah. And great moment. It's fantastic moment. And I, I, again, like I'm not 100% sold on it, but I do think it's an interesting interpretation in terms of like, well, will he end up being Miguel in 20 years when he's been through all these experiences or will Miles actually do his own thing and actually change things? 
I have a feeling it's the latter because yeah, uh, because that's watching a, <laughs> <laughs> watching a movie with what like a bubber. Uh, if they get to the end of the movie, they're like, "Well, couldn't change that cannon event, yeah. Miles." I'm old now. <laughs> I hate everything. Uh, but you know, talking about that scene, <clears throat> just to jump back into the story and like some of the action set pieces and all of that, like the idea of putting a set piece on a like a. Tr- fairy like a basically a fairy to the moon mm-hmm. that they're all running up and like that whole sequence i was like i can't and this is me being like such a a long time comic book i'm like i don't know how anybody else gets this i'm like wait of course they get it it's just like reading a comic book mm-hmm. well i don't need to know everything about the comic book when i'm reading it. why do i think people who don't read the comic book need to know everything about it to get it because it's all right there just like in the first movie it's just the the swings they take. I keep using that term in these movies. It's so amazing. It should be highlighted and held up as what we need to do and see in all of our movies and TV shows. Well, and I'm really curious. This is getting way far afield, not even speculating about the next movie. But Into the Spider-Verse had clearly such a seismic effect on mainstream animated films. You look at things from like... Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, to The Bad Guys. I don't know if you saw that one, to uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles. That's what I was going to say. That's like, they're like, I I feel like they saw, they were like, got it. And they just did it. (laughs) And the movies probably looks good. But like, but that's crazy. Like, I would so much rather see that than like the umpteenth DreamWorks smirky, side smirky guys doing their like, what are we going to do now? Oh boy, let's play a pop song thing, you know? Well, and I think that's like, that's all the derivative of shrek like mm-hmm. shrek owned the animated world for a, you know i disney and pixar sort of have a little at least pixar has their own little pocket but like it feels like everyone has been making a bunch of shreks and then now <laughs> we've got spider verse to come and be like you know we can we don't have to put you know 30 jokes 15 of which are for adults 15 of which are for kids and no one is fully entertained <laughs> the whole time <laughs> we can have a movie that just is good and everybody sort of gets it and if you have a question if because like, you know my kids are younger i'm like if you have a question we'll stop and the younger would be like, i have a question pause Ooh, what's going on here <laughs> and that's another dimension uh, we were talking to him like all right and we would go forward and like she she rode with it yeah, that's awesome. I did want to ask you about two characters in particular that I was thinking about you while I was watching the movie uh, that I was curious to get your take on. The first one is Miguel, Spider-Man 2099, yeah. who I know you like a lot. So Love. how did you feel about his portrayal of the movie? Well, you know, I love the original character where there was a hero because it was – we see the cover drop on, I think, uh, Rick Leonardi was uh, behind it in the original Marvel 2099 run. And it's such an interesting, it was the first wild take on Spider-Man where they replicated the origin story in a completely new way. And so I love that. This was a little different because it was someone who was so like stuck in their ways. I think just as like this sort of hero slash villain uh, character is great. The fact that he he's a vampire in this, I guess. Well, so I, I have questions about this because I was never really a 2099 guy that that didn't appeal to me in any way. So I never really read those comic books. So coming out of the movie, I was like, oh, man, he's got these vampire fags. He's like injecting stuff with him. There's a point when Miles is like, are you even a Spider-Man? And I started speculating same thing I speculated going into this movie was like, wait a second, hold on. What if he is a vampire? If he's a vampire. He could be 
Morlin, the leader of the mm. inheritors, who is secretly manipulating all these Canada vets to turn everybody so no. he can suck out of their spider energy. And then I did a quick read about Spider-Man 2099. I was like, oh, no, this is like 100% what he does. He has fangs, fangs I think, yeah. in the comics. And yeah. he also doesn't have regular – I guess it's just strength and agility are his spider powers. And that's – he does like have it, web shooters, right. but they're over. They're different in the comic. Uh, I believe they came out of the top of his uh, hand rather than um, the classic thwip thwip. And he he has Lila, his holographic sidekick, mm-hmm. which they never explained what just happened. Which I was like, <laughs> all right, let's go. I know what this is, but other people probably don't. Yeah, he in his origin, he was never bitten by something. He had his DNA like overwritten by spider mm-hmm. DNA. So it was again a little bit different, uh, but. I think he counts as a Spider-Man. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, so I think we are going to get something a little more complicated with him in the main next movie in terms of he has to deal with stuff. I do think if we want to get into a little speculation about him, we get a quick shot of this scene where he's hanging out with Peter B. Parker, where the universe they're in is shutting down. He gives a lot of reference to his main motivator, which is that he uh, is girlfriend died his wife died i guess and so he went to a universe where he died to be with his daughter again so i think we're going to loop back to that and get more information about that in some way potentially in the next movie but i really liked him a lot i thought oscar isaac did a fantastic job with the voice it was a really good complicated villain and you understand why all of these people are scared of him but also following him and the way that he degrades over the course of the movie is oh, um, really, really well done. The other character I wanted to ask you about, though, was Ben Riley. Uh, yeah. Are you I, – I, I don't remember. Were you a Ben Riley guy? Uh, not in the olden days. In the mm-hmm. in sort of the middle part, not the most recent. This is getting into the wonky comic side of it. But recently he's been this sort of um, demonic adjacent villain. Uh, in the Marvel Universe. But before that, he was just a clone trying to live his life. Uh, and But I thought in this movie, it was great. I, w- I felt like the movie wanted a little bit more of him. Mm-hmm. He occupied a little bit of the halfway between Spider-Man Noir and Spider-Ham in this movie. I felt like we needed just like one more scene with him doing stuff to punch through a little bit of comedy when we would have needed it. Uh, but I love the idea that it is like a ripped from straight up the comic book. He's just mm-hmm. the comic book guy who's draw his outfits stiff. It's really like a drawing that you've plastered onto the. Yeah. Movie. Andy Samberg did such a great job with the voice. It was so funny. All of the like insanely over the top 90s narration I thought was great. Uh, yeah. For anybody who doesn't know, Ben Riley is a clone of Peter Parker. He was involved in this whole insanely long clone saga thing to the point where people are like, please stop it with Ben Riley. This is terrible. But well, the sin, the sin of the clone saga was it was revealed at one point that Peter was the clone and Ben is the actual Peter Parker. Uh-huh. And everyone was like, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want that to be what I like. But I do think, like you're saying, even beyond the villain stuff, he's called the villain. His villain name is chasm. Now uh, there's been this real, nostalgia looking back like 20 years or so or 30 years i guess to ben riley at this point where people are like oh no i really like ben riley he was cool he was really like extreme in 90s to the point where i've seen a bunch of people on nine being like they really did ben riley dirty in this movie which i think is very silly but then at 
the, when I was at the AMC Empire 25, there was literally one of the guys sitting down the road from me that was like, this movie is fucking bullshit. They're doing Ben Riley dirty. How dare they? And I was like, why? Who? <laughs> why? What are you doing? What comics are you reading, guy? When did you become a fan of Ben Riley? In what yeah. iteration? Because the part I was talking about where I thought he was cool was like 10 issues or something. It's like there wasn't <laughs> years of fandom. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I thought it was fun. I agree with you. Like just in terms of a comedy bit, I thought it was great. Uh, what, uh, there's a couple of other characters you can probably talk about. I mean, obviously we talked about Gwen and Miles a bunch, but we also meet, uh, who is called in the comics, at least Spider-Man India, who I also thought was a phenomenal character. Love that whole sequence. I agree. I also love that. I love how he's like, ooh, romantic tension, just like right in on it. None of that coy, like this movie always going hard. I like the way that that felt like just a whole standalone set piece that was fun, great energy. And right when we needed it in the movie where it was just like a fun breakaway from all the heavier stuff. The uh, I love the whole bit of him being like, "Wow, this is easy! It's so easy, yeah. <laughs> Spider Man." Very funny, and uh, I saw a quick interview with the actor who plays him, who also is the cab driver who I'm blanking the name of from the Deadpool movies. So he's mm. been in a bunch of stuff before, but apparently. So they've apparently, and this is like a bigger thing, but they apparently have been working on this movie until like Tuesday, this past Tuesday, They've been, which oh, is wow. insane. But he was saying that even a couple of months ago, they came to him and said, hey, we love what you're doing, but these India sequences, the Mumbai Hatton sequences, Mumbatton, sorry, uh, sequences, we, they don't feel culturally specific enough. Like, we feel like mm. we're just doing a broad wash of it, and we need some help. So they brought the actor in. They set up a writer's room and just batted around ideas for stuff to come up with things. And when I heard him talking about this, I was like, oh, okay. So they had a couple of, like, quick lines that he said. But he was like, no, I, I came up with the chai tea bit. That was one of the things. Oh, that really? Oh, that's so I was funny. Like, that's a that whole thing. That's yeah. all like those are whole animated sequences that you just put into the movie a couple of months ago. That's wild. It sort of was the main runner of that whole sequence. It was yeah. like it happened like three or five times that that was like the callback joke. Yeah. So that's pretty wild. Um, what else can we talk about? Oh, we haven't talked about the spot. We haven't talked about the villain of the movie. Um, Jason Schwartzman, phenomenal. I I love the spot. Like yeah. I from the comics, one of my favorite villains. Like he's so weird, weird. and it, it's the way that they use him in the movie is absolutely perfect. Like the whole spots everywhere, heads and legs coming out of things. Yeah, great. Well, in the comic, when he was introduced, he was very much like that. Like goofy, weird, like hard to understand what was going on. In a good way, in a way where it was like, oh, this feels different. Most villains show up and they're like, I'm mad about this and now I'm going to take it out on you. Let's fight. And the fact that this and we sort of sneak up on him being this arch nemesis for Miles. And I love that, too. Like, I love the idea of how that arc develops over the course of the movie, going from, oh, he's just a villain of the week to he by the end of the movie, Miles is like, he's my nemesis. He yeah. is. So they really get to this place, which I think is great because they both level up in a very specific way. Miles is a hero and the spot is a villain. Um, I did want to ask you about a joke, though. So mm. you, I remember this very clearly when we were talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, thought that the Holes joke was stupid. They do yeah. basically the same joke, which is just saying the word holes a lot in this movie. How did you feel about it here? 
Here's the thing. Because I, I hear you. When I yeah, yeah. had that thing of like, I've heard this joke before. I don't like hearing a joke again. But in Ant-Man, the whole thing is not germane to the character. It's an add-on that they just started saying. This, his whole thing is holes. So mm-hmm. like the whole thing, it makes, it is part of the character. And so I get, I get it. It felt more like a throwaway side joke rather than, in Ant-Man, they're trying to make holes happen. They're mm-hmm. pressing holes. And I'm like, I don't, holes didn't happen for me here. And this, like, holes happened because they were already happening and then they just set it, they threw the joke in there as they were sort of flying by. So yeah. I'm here for it. I'm here yeah. for holes. Yeah, that's that's exactly the explanation I was looking for. Um, what else? Uh, we could probably talk about the parents, I think, a little bit. Uh, they definitely got amped up a ton in this movie. I thought they were phenomenal performances as well. Um, and I just really liked how it played out. Yeah, agree. They're, they're such good parents where they, well, they just remind me of very modern parents. They're like, oh, we are going to crack down on this kid. And they're like, well, let's let him go out. One more time. Let's let him do a little bit more fun. He seems to have this person he's trying to date. I don't know. Let's let him just go off for a little bit. So I thought that they're very, they're so likable. I buy that they love each other, which I think in movies you don't see uh, a ton. And I, I, it reminded me a lot, especially watching the first movie so recently, of the way Aunt May was in the first movie where it wasn't the – a doddering old woman who's like, she's like with it. She knew what was happening and it was like, she cracked some heads in that action sequence when she needed to. So like they're, they're finding ways to use these sort of adult role people in a much more realistic and useful way. Yeah. Uh, there's obviously a lot of other characters in here that we could probably call out. Uh, Donald Glover, shout out to uh, <laughs> sort of hanging out, which I thought was wild. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, it, that worked on so many levels. I can't believe they did that. I mean, I can't believe yeah. they did that. But for anybody who doesn't know the history, because it's, it's a little complicated, I'll go through it quickly. But when they were setting up when they were rebooting the Spider-Man movies before Andrew Garfield, Donald Glover started a fad campaign, Donald Glover for Spider-Man, um, tried to get that going. People were very supportive of it. Obviously, it didn't happen, uh, but they did a cheeky joke about it in the second season of Community, which he was on at the time, where he wakes up in Spider-Man pajamas, his character, out of bed right at the beginning where they're doing like a whole montage there. Um, but the bigger thing, and they've been like, not cagey about this, but they haven't necessarily come out and say this because there's a bunch of different reasons. But Don Glover was one of the big reasons that they created Miles to begin with. This was because of this fad campaign for Donald Glover for Spider-Man, and it was so popular and overwhelming. I don't know if it was specifically Brian Michael Bendis or somebody else at Marvel or a combination of things, but it really started to spark this idea of like, hey, we can have a a Spider-Man who's not Peter Parker. It doesn't look like Peter Parker. It means something to people that we have a character who is Spider-Man who is not generic white guy. And ultimately, that's one of the influences that went into the stew. I know that uh, Bendis also threw his kids in there um, as well as part of the inspiration. He certainly used that for a lot of characters. Um, And I'm sure a bunch of other things at the same time. But... That's Donald Glover is one of the reasons we have Miles. And then beyond that, that's why they threw Donald Glover into the first Tom Holland Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man Homecoming, Mm. where he played Aaron, Miles' uncle. He makes a reference to his nephew. um, And we know he's stealing stuff at the time. So we're like, oh, okay, that's Aaron. That's the Prowler. There we go. And then we never saw him again. 
I will know, which I didn't know about, but in the very end of Spider-Man No Way Home, when Tom Holland's Spider-Man moves into his new apartment, you can hear the neighbors kind of talking. And apparently it's very low in the sound mix in the American cut. In the Portuguese cut, for whatever reason, mm. if you look at the translation, the neighbors are actually being like something like, Miles, it's time to go to bed. So Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> – Wild, but like, no, but I will say, you always watch the Portuguese cuts with the subtitles on in the yeah, English translation. Absolutely, that's the best way of watching anything. Hundred percent. Yeah, I called up uh, Christopher Dolan, and he was like, "Hey, are you going to be watching Oppenheimer your regular way?" And I was like, "Sure, am." You're, but you got it, buddy. Foot on the subway. Uh, I mean, the the sad part for for Donald Glover to play Miles is he got old, and but before <laughs> right. they made the movie, so that's why I think he got. He got put in as uh, Prowler in, in the movie, and then that's where he ends up here. So it all it all hangs. But that was great. Uh, all of that stuff in there, it is so overwhelming when they get to the Spider Society HQ. But they really do, like, even with all the stuff in the background where it's, like, literally every Spider-Man costume that you ever seen in a comic book page ever is there. They still give time for so many things. Did you have any favorites that jumped out? Well, to you? all I saw when I saw Peter parked car all was Dan Slott's name, Dan Slott, <laughs> Spider-Man writer. I was like, and he worked on the movie as a consultant. You know, he slid that in there and, and made that happen. That was no joke. That was the number one thing my son got most excited for because he's been <laughs> reading some of the Spider-Verse stuff. I showed him. There was this insane joke that Dan did in a recent issue of Spider-Man where Miles pulls up in Peter Parkar and they're like, wow, how did you get here so quickly? And Peter Parkar says, like, that's because I'm the best parallel Parker, which amazing Woof. joke. Amazing. Yeah. The best. Pun on pun on pun on pun. <laughs> Mr. Dan Slott. Uh so th- that was definitely the one that popped. Uh, and there were a couple that I was like, I feel like I've seen this Spider-Man before, but I can't place where. Well, so when. to call out a couple of, uh, there was Malala was yep. a uh-huh. Spider-Man. <laughs> Which I was like, okay, sure. That was great. I was like, great, throw that in there. Uh, people at my screen got very excited for the Insomniac Spider-Man, which is the one for the video games. Yeah. I'll also note... I wasn't sure about this, and I checked some stuff later, though it seemed like the right thing to me. But Gonke, when he's in his room playing a video game, he's yeah. playing Spider-Man 2, the game I that saw that about yet. Yeah. Which is great. Baller. I know. I would that I I saw that and I was like, I, I also didn't check, but I was like, I bet that's exactly what it yeah. is. And it was uh shouts to that. I'm surprised we haven't seen more of him. Uh, Gonke? Being, yeah. I, I think that's gotta do with the Tom Holland stuff because and this yeah. is again, I'll just sort of like lay it out for anybody to doesn't know, but in the Miles Morales comics, when he was first introduced, he had a best friend named Gonke, who's like a nerd. He played Legos with him. He did all this stuff. Um, he is uh, half Asian, I think, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever it is, like all of these characteristics, they then made Tom Holland Peter Parker's best friend Gonke, but then called yeah. him Dead Leads. So when you get around to into the Spider-Verse and across the Spider-Verse, of course you've got to do something different because they already have Gonke in there. So so I, I yeah. think that's why they've been downplaying him is like he already exists in another movie to the point. This movie, they had a very fun joke where Gonke is like, I'm not going to be your man in the chair, which yeah. is the thing that Ned is always saying Says, in the yeah. Tom Holland movies. So he's funny. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to shout out I I can't take credit for being ahead of the movie, but 
in the movie when uh, Miles is about to be transported to his world and it says Earth 42, I I was like, something in my head was like, that's wrong. That's not right. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think I didn't think about it. I was like, that's weird. It shouldn't be 42, but I didn't put it all together. And then later he's when he's talking to his mom. She has green eyes. Mm. And I the was thing, like, she has brown eyes in. Uh, so the thing that I noticed in that scene, and this is, I'll just lay this out. Like my, my wife and my oldest both were like, oh yeah, we knew immediately he was in the wrong universe. Like they 100% figured it yeah. out. And I think to the movie's credit, this is how you do a twist. It's like, you don't hide it. Yeah. You, you put should, it out, you put it right in front of it. hundred percent. Cause that, that was what I was going to say is like the fact that they had like, dropped it there is so much better than doing it as just a, a hot, cold like reversal of him mm-hmm. being in the wrong art. Anyway, good. But the thing that I picked up on that scene is when Miles is puts on his hoodie to hide his costume, he's wearing <clears throat> purple and green. That's his code hoodie combination. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. That's prowler colors. I guess he's uh, wearing that to show like, he's oh, more like see? in a darker direction or something like that. And no, it's like literally he has those clothes because he's the prowler. And that's what we find out in several scenes. But again, I think that points to exactly what we're saying. This idea that like, they lay all the information out there. Like the twists are not like surprise. It's, they show you everything. There's so many. Know. There's another, yeah. what's up with your hair? It happens yeah. twice. Uh, and I was like, the second time I was like, oh, now we definitely know. He's not <laughs> right, yeah. Well, right that to me, when I heard that, because I hadn't picked up on the wrong earth twist, I was like, mm, there's another Miles somewhere and he has different hair. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. So, Again, we have I a comic have... book brain where we hold on to where the, the information hits us, but we don't think about it. We're just like, right. it'll be interesting <laughs> later when you find out whatever is about to happen. Uh, but yeah, that whole, I mean, if we want to talk about that whole sequence that I'd love to just jump back and mention a couple of like Spider-Man Easter egg things, um, is so many just gut punches yeah. in a row. It even hit me harder the second time, frankly, seeing it just mm, like, you knew, yeah, because you know, it's coming. And I was feeling like, oh God, what's, what is this audience going to do when they find out this stuff? Yeah. And the Earth 42 twist of Biles being the wrong universe, that was an especially great one with an audience because it was just this slow wave of mm. ex- all this information that we're talking about, where there were people that are like, wait, what's going on? Is he in the wrong universe? And then like a minute later, somebody would be like, oh my God. <laughs> That's really and it, funny. it was incredible to watch this stuff happen. The moment when the camera, you get to see the world ruined because it's this world without Spider-Man and you're like, Oh my God, it's a world without Spider-Man. This is horrible. The sinister six clearly has like taken over parts of New York. And that's something that they're going to have to deal with. And Uh, then then the camera spins around and turns around and you see his dad is dead. It is like Uh. the biggest emotional gut punch of all. And then that's not the end of it. There's still miles is the prowler and Gwen has her team together and positive gut punch. Yeah. And then the spot is coming to the city and is more powerful than ever. Huge. Just like the whole last five to 10 minutes of the movie is just like tingling all over my body when I was watching that. Yeah, and when I was watching that, I was like, all oh, right, it's going to be it's to be continued because the next movies are <laughs> coming out pretty soon. I was like, oh, my God, what are they going to do? Oh, that feels like it's enough ending. Oh, my God, they're setting up so much stuff. Oh, my God. It is that sort of like high, escalating high until we hit the to be continued. Yeah. Um, a couple of other little Easter eggy things I want to mention from the Spider Society in particular. So getting back to the video game section, I didn't pick up on this one. I recommend if you want to do a deep dive into all the Spider-Mans, uh, there's a guy who hosts a podcast. I think it's 
it's called the Amazing Spider Podcast or Amazing Spider Talk or something right. like that. Um, he did for the Hollywood Reporter a rundown of like well over a hundred Easter eggs, which is mostly like I saw this spider suit and I saw this spider suit. Yeah. And this is where it's from, but it's a very good read. So I definitely recommend chasing it down. Uh, but the other two video game characters are in fact from Spider-Man video games. One of oh, they're not. Sorry, one of them is from a Spider-Man. Uh, spectacular Spider-Man. I think there was an episode where, like, there was a villain called Video Game Man. <laughs> That's oh, who he yeah. is. I got and then it. the other one, the like incomprehensible pixel guy who is there, is the Green Goblin from the original Spider-Man video game when it was just oh, like twelve that's pixels. Funny. So that's it. Great. So uh, there was that. Uh, oh my gosh, there were a couple of others that I wanted to call out. Of course, you got to see the original animated Spider-Man coming directly towards the screen. That fun. was very fun as well. Uh, and the last... Spider-Man who calls out, he's like, there's no way to get out of here. He's like, oh, my bad. There was a way of getting out of here. That's Metro Boobin who oversaw the soundtrack. He made his Mm. spider soda, which is a thing that came up from the first movie, which they had like, you could make your spider soda and upload it or whatever. And then they had all contest out of it. Um, which actually I could get to an Easter egg about that in a second, but that was his spider soda showing up there. Uh-huh. The other one was Sun Spider, who was the spider soda contest winner, who was the one in the wheelchair who's chasing after Miles. Yes. That showed up in the comics, and then it also showed up his year as well. So that was just a regular guy who pitched that as a character, and now, now it's on screen. Shouts to that. We also got to see the uh, Spider-Man Whopper, Right or the oh, Burger did we? King oh, that he was stepping on? Yeah, you see it real quick, real quick in a, a sort of a flyby, and that just reminded me when we were talking to Bendis about this, and he was like tearing up when he <laughs> saw it for the commercial for it, and I was like, yeah. imagine the tears at the movie. Oh, the other one that we haven't talked about yet is Spider Punk. We haven't talked about Spider Punk at all. Yes. Brown. Um, I, I, can I do a humble brag? Is that okay? So back in the day when I worked at MTV news, um, we exclusively revealed spider punk. Um, Mm, and I had forgotten about this. I went back and looked at the article I wrote. I forgot that like the whole idea was guys, we're launching this new character. It's called spider punk. Not only is he going to be in comics, but he's also going to be in this Spider-Man infinite runner game that you can play on your iPhone or Android device. Oh my God. So I had like these two things that I had to wrestle and I was very proud of myself actually looking back at it and being like, Oh yeah. Every other paragraph is like, yeah, this is what we're doing in this mobile game. And then talking to Jed McKay, who created it being like, this is what we're doing in the comic books. Um, a couple of other quick things that I'll mention about that interview in particular. One, at the end of it, I had asked him about, like, what do you think the future is of Spider-Punk beyond uh, this event? Because he showed up at the original Spider-Verse event where there was a bunch of people killing alternate Spider-Man. He's like, well, if he'd survive, I'm sure I'll be playing in a band somewhere, maybe with, like, Gwen Stacy Spider-Man or something like that. So I was like, yeah. oh, that's a, that's a bit of prescient thought there. The Uh other thing that I'll mention is I had asked Jed this question during the interview about like, how do you set up an Antarctic uh, Spider-Man 
when you're doing it for Marvel that is owned by Disney in the most corporate way possible. And he gave a great answer to it and sort of laid out. He was like, listen, we're in the comics. He's still like raging against the machine and doing all this stuff. Also, by the way, um, how are MTV's ratings for Super Sweet 16 doing? And I was like, oh, so <laughs> so that was very good. But I'll mention this like the last asterisk and then I'll stop talking about this. Um, I Do you remember when he came on the show like uh, eight years later or something? We had him on the live show. And one of the first things he said is like, I've been upset about that interview for eight years. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. Because of you? Because, because of, of me. You... Because of asking about, like, he was so clearly so excited to be like, we're so excited about Spider-Punk, really going to, like, <laughs> wrestle with this character and make him all into anarchy. And I legitimately was like, I think this is an interesting question. Like, how do you wrestle with these things? I 100% didn't mean it aggressively at all. Hilarious. But he had been holding on to it from that time that I talked to him until, like, eight years later. And we, so funny. for anybody listening, if you listen to the live show... We worked through it, and I think everything's all good now. That's so funny because uh, yeah. I I don't I wait, I can't believe I don't remember that because I love Jed McKay's work uh, sort of across the board. So I would definitely be have been on his team. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but Hobie Ground, great in here. I so love. Good. He's one of the characters that like I th- keep thinking about the most after this movie. Just in particular, like little moves, like in the fight. Not the fight, but like the discussion where all the spiders are like, Miles, you can't leave, you can't do this. And Hobie is just riling everybody up. And Jess turns to him and is like, Hobie, you're not helping. And he turns to her and says, Good. Yeah. And that to me is the key to the character is like, he is a good guy. He's not just all about anarchy and wrecking stuff for wrecking stuff's sake. He's really trying to push Miles and Gwen in the right direction of doing the right thing. And push the whole enterprise. He, like, recognizes that it's not a good thing right now. Yeah. And sees the opportunity. Do you think, because my oldest kid and I have been fighting about this all day, Mm. do you think Hobie and Gwen were in a romantic relationship, or is Gwen just crashing in his dimension? Uh, I think just crashing. They're in a band together, so they they hang out. Um, I agree. That's not what 13-year-old people think. <laughs> well, of course, you know, it's, well, I will say they do a good job of being like, no, it didn't. Oh, maybe. And then he's, she's wearing his shoes, mm-hmm. uh, is, is said. But I, I really do, at the end of the day, it felt like it was, they're in a, once it says like, well, they're in a band together. I was like, well, of course, everybody's just hanging out all at all hours. Yeah. A um, couple of other quick things to talk about. We did talk about Peter B. Parker in this movie. I think he's the one that to be not even gets the shortest shrift, but he's the only character, even though I really like seeing him and I love May Day Parker. So much fun watching her swing around and do everything. He's the only one that feels a little shoved into me, to be honest. Yeah. I don't know if you felt the same way. I agree with you. It felt like he had such a a lot of the story in the first one and in this one he just has nothing to do mm-hmm. and i think it was because like well we already have enough story i think they wanted him to be there because also i think he's pressing a bit comedically he's written to be like the dad stuff i'm like hey man you know this is way more serious than you coming in and being like is my daughter cool but and he does it and like I, it's fine it didn't make me mad but i i felt the pressure the and the writing on being like let's give him this this is his thing he's gonna say this all the whole time but it felt like he would be much more self-aware. Like he is a little bit of a father figure. He says a bunch of times, which I thought it was a funny joke for him of him. Like, well, he must be good. I must be a good mentor because he mm-hmm. did that. 
so that's what I thought he was really working. But I'm hoping in the next one he has a little bit more to do or there's more for him to be. Yeah. And uh, the last one we should probably talk about is Jessica Drew. We touched on her a little bit, but this is obviously a very different take on Jessica Drew than the way that we see her. It is pretty specifically drawn, at least in part, on Dennis Hopeless's run on yeah. Spider-Woman, which found her pregnant. Uh, she's riding around. She's solving mysteries ostensibly. Um I liked her. I thought uh, I really liked the character. I thought it was a different take on the character, but I enjoyed watching her. Yeah, another character where I want just a, I want one more scene, mm-hmm. uh, and like it's a movie where there's so much going on for a, a mo- it's two hours and sixteen minutes. I, I feel like they couldn't put m- much more in there. Is why we are where we are with it. But like, I just wanted to because she's one where you're like, she definitely gives Gwen a lot of leeway even though she's sort of deviating from the mm-hmm. rules of their group. But you don't quite, especially at the end when she's sort of menacingly following Gwen around, you're like, I don't know where she really lands here. Is she, is she a mentor for Gwen? Is she Miguel's like, maybe like a, a enforcer? Like it's hard to really pin mm-hmm. her down at the end, but I agree. I love seeing her. I like the, she's a badass uh, motorbike. Great. Well, I think this could segue us nicely into speculation about Beyond the Spider-Verse, because I think like how we talked about Miguel, I think there's a lot more to find out about what actually went on with him. I think it's the same way as Jessica Drew. I'm hoping, but I also expect that we're going to get more of her backstory in the next movie. We never got to see her do the, okay, let's do this one more time. Here's my story thing. Yeah, And I I think they're saving that for the next movie. Um, But overall... <clears throat> what do you think is going to happen? What's your What's your takeaway? What do you think is going to happen in the movie? I mean, what do you if we're want going to happen in the movie, well, uh, that I mean, it's hard to say. I I don't ever want to like. I just want to ride like ride along. I want to just walk in with nothing in my mind and just have it be filled with all these because this movie is offer. These movies are offering so much on every creative front, but. I want to see Miles break the canon for him. Like, I don't want to see anybody in him in his life. Because also, his uncle died. That was clearly his mm-hmm. canon moment. So, like, the fact that we're in that, it feels a little, like, I'm. there's a little bit of uh, friction there. So, I don't know where mm-hmm. we're going to land with that. Um, as far as, like, Gwen and Miles, like, I, I don't. They're, they feel like they're sort of implying romance, but also maybe not. Like mm-hmm. we have seen them be just the people for each other, whether that's romantic or not. I uh, just want to see them sort of find, really honor that connection. I feel like it's just been a speculative connection uh, so far. And then I just want to see all the characters smash together a bunch of times and uh, see what happens. Yeah, I'm I'm very curious because it feels like and this is a ridiculous thing to say, but it feels like it's a straight line in a in a way that they set up at the end of the movie that you've got Gwen's team is heading for the spot. Miles is trying to fight back against the Prowler or probably have to deal with stuff with whatever's going on with the Sinister Six in Earth 42. He's probably going to have to fight them before he gets back to his own dimension. Love um, that. But it feels like there's this compressed timeline before the spot wrecks New York City, brings the building down. Miles's father has to run and save the kid in the red shirt. Like, you've got about a day there, right? This can't be 
all that they have planned. I feel like there are swerves and changes there. You can't just have it be in Earth-42 and in Miles' dimension. It's called Beyond the Spider-Verse. They need to go beyond in some way. So my guess is that in order to unravel this and in order to figure out what's going on with these canon events and whether they're canon or not, I think they're really going to probably go to the source of the Spider-Verse, of the web, and find out what that means, because we haven't really plumbed into that much yet. Madam Web, we're going to get? Potentially Madam Web. Um, I'll mention, uh, I didn't mention this. It's earlier. weird. Sorry, they, they yeah. set up the web, but they didn't put the Madam there. So yeah. They really did all of the work. Yes. And they do have uh, Master Weaver or whatever, which the is Weaver, the yeah. home machine. Yeah. So. Yeah, it feels like there's there's more there. Like, I think they got to go into the origins of it a little bit and expand it even further and push it even further rather than having this tight little story. Well, but I also think there's a good – I feel like the movie opens with the uh, the Miles from Earth 42, his comic book origin story. Mm-hmm. And then I, I bet we spent some time there. I think Miles talking to a Miles that chose a different path is almost like the sort of mirror he needs to see to to continue to, to self-define in the way that I think he is. And I, I feel like that could be a, a big chunk of the movie. Well, and to throw it out there, because they're not specific about it, um, we do get to see in the Spot's backstory. And by the way, uh, the Spot, even though he says that he was in all of Into the Spider-Verse, he wasn't. I was trying yeah. to keep an eye out for him. There's definitely somebody who gets hit by a bagel, but it's hit not by like bagel. he's in the other scenes or anything like that. Um, so they're definitely retconning that. Uh, but like in the Stott's backstory, you actually do get to see the Miles from Earth-42 about to be bit by the spider before the spot blips it away. So the Spider-Man of Earth-42 seemingly was supposed to be that Miles. So my guess mm. is that that Miles wasn't able to save his father, and that's what drove him along the path to potentially be the Prowler. So maybe that's something that we'll find out in the next movie. I don't know. But like you're saying, I think, yeah, we got to ride with these two Miles, explore that, explore what that means. Um, Another thing, sorry, this is just like a couple of quick Easter eggs that were occurring to me. Um, I thought it was very funny that when Miguel O'Hara is like, okay, let's take a look at the entire multiverse. And very quickly, they're like, here's what the multiverse looks like in the MCU. Is this weird glowing blue tree thing. Anyway, forget about that. It looks like webs, webs, yeah, webs, yeah. webs, which clearly felt to me, and Sony has done this so many times, specifically Amy Pascal over at Pascal Pictures, but she's always like, yeah, we got to do this MCU thing in here. Tie it into the MCU. Like they did the same thing with Morbius and they've done stuff with Venom and other things. And it felt very forced in and it felt like they just kind of wanted to push it to the side. Well, and like there's the flip reference to um, the Spider-Man uh, multiverse in uh, the Doctor Strange. Um, mm-hmm. All the, They've messed up the multiverse so much, which a lot of people have been making hay about that. And it's clearly, and they say, it's just a joke. Relax, everybody. Mm-hmm. It's not anything that we are contractually uh, violating any terms for. Yeah, I think that's the big thing is like they want to do it and they want to let audiences be like, this is part of the MCU. It's all the same story. But contractually, they can't actually do that without ruining whatever they want to have going on with Tom Holland for Spider-Man 4. So I don't know. We'll see how it pans out. But Um, I'm also like, it is the same story because it's the same thing. Like you can't, as much as everyone wants to either put it together or keep it separate, it's like, it's Spider-Man. Spider-Man is 
Marvel. If you come into it from the comics, Spider-Man is the the, the person. So, yep. like, to have it be, like, shit, sh- sh- like, striding these lines that are so specific feels so crazy because it's all one story. And it, it even if it never crosses the barrier of the the MCU universe in the way that everyone seems to want it to. Yeah. Um, oh, we didn't mention Lego Spider-Man. That was a great sequence and a good shout out to Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who brought along the Lego movies as well. Really enjoyed that. Um, we also we touched on this briefly, but we got to see a lot of scenes from Tobey Maguire's movies and also Andrew Garfield's movies as well, which I thought was very fun and touching. Yes. It made me think that Andrew Garfield is the favorite of the Sony side of the movies because he was definitely yeah. the one that was featured. Toby got a couple of like background shots, mm-hmm. but. But Andrew is in primetime. I think so. And that got to one of the last things I wanted to talk about before we wrap up here. So, again, we're going beyond the Spider-Verse, right? And we've already seen that at least when the spot pops his head into the Venomverse, uh, he is still animated. But there's been a lot of speculation about, like, are we going to see live-action versions of Miles? Are we going to see live-action versions of Gwen? On the red carpet, a couple of people were like, yep, you're absolutely at some point going to see live-action Miles, and you're going to see live-action Spider-Woman maybe sooner than you think, wink, wink. So do you think by the end of this next movie we are going to see actual live-action versions of these characters, and do you want to see that? Well, I don't really want to in within the confines of these movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and I know I was just sort of uh, shit-talking contracts, but where does Miles land on the contractual side? Can Sony just make a Miles live-action movie? Yeah, I then think so. They would be insane not to do that. <laughs> That's <laughs> clearly the next move. And I don't want to see like him drop out of like into an earth where he's suddenly like, look, I'm uh, I have skin. I'm, I'm 3D. <laughs> I have bones. Yeah. I don't want to see that. But to they sh- they need to gesture toward that here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in the in the end of Beyond the Spider Verse and ha- give give us that killer that could be while the, all the tom holland stuff continues on and everybody loves that this could be the next thing or at, at least something that is just as big going right alongside it yeah i think i don't need like you said i don't need to see a live action miles or a live action gwen these takes seem definitive to me i also yeah. don't necessarily need to see shabik moore or Haley steinfeld in these costumes they are not quite right for the live action version of this characters even though they're yes. killing it for the voices so But on the opposite of the spectrum, I think we're going to get it anyway. Like, I think we are going to see, if it's not them specifically, it's going to be them, the cartoon versions of themselves interacting with live action versions of themselves. Uh, You know, like DJ uh, Scat Cat. What was it? Mm, (laughs) With Paul Abdul. Yes, yes, yes. Opposite attract. Opposite attract. There you go. They're going to do a little opposite attract at some point. I, I think we are going to get it because, like you said, They'd be crazy not to do it. And it's also a very sneaky way potentially to set up live action versions of these characters for movies going forward. It definitely amps things up considerably. Another way that they could do it. They didn't have Tom Holland in this movie, right? Like, I don't think he was there anywhere when you had pretty much every other version of Spider-Man ever. There might be contractual reasons for that, or they might be holding back on Tom Holland for the next movie to interact with these characters in some way. So... 
I love how this movie looks visually. It, it blows me away in every single frame. I think the animation is, frankly, even stronger than the live-action versions of this stuff. And I'm totally cool with them continuing with that. But in terms of event status, I would be very surprised if we don't see more live-action sequences in this next movie. You know, and I get that they there's probably a bunch of pressure on that. I, I do think it would harm, even though they successfully weaved them in here, for our main characters to become become something else, I think would harm the story unless it is that sort of coat, like wherever these characters land, if they see, if they're seeing the live action versions of themselves or, or, or it is like, because mm-hmm. it's, it's the spider verse. It doesn't have to be these same people. It can be them watching these other people or sort of landing as a little epilogue or something like that. So we don't, we get this as it is, as this super creative thing. Cause I do think, no matter how well it's weaved into the story, it'll still feel like a corporate mandate that came down on top of the story rather than something yeah. that sprung out of it. Yeah, I guess we'll see. They also have said uh, they haven't said anything in terms of an updated timeline. You know, it's still supposed to come out beyond the Spireverse in March of next year. I will be very surprised if that happened, particularly because they said, again, as recently as this past week or a week before, that they're still really working on the movie. I think it was like the second act felt wobbly is the word that they used. So the pressure, as we're taping this, this has had a $120 million plus weekend, would have expected to make $80 million maximum. And even that was double what the first one made. So it's it's coming in triple what the first one made. So So the amount of, like, that doesn't relieve the pressure on them for the third one. When people are like, this is a work of art, this is the best superhero movie ever made, it makes insane amount of money, and it's going to have great legs throughout the summer. Going into Beyond the Spider-Verse, I... From a Sony perspective, I'm sure they're like, put this out as soon as possible. We need the money. But from a creator perspective, I think they're going to have to push back. And I think they are going to push back and be like, no, you need to give us as much time as possible for this to be a fitting conclusion to this trilogy. Well, but if like we've just been speculating, if this is setting up a Miles franchise that like think about how the rest of the current Spider-Man franchise is such a killer for them. Mm-hmm. Like this could be that and more. It's a cresting superhero movie that's rising in power as the rest of them are fading away. They're going to give them some time to make it yeah. right. They're going to give them an extra, let's say three months, pick that summer weekend, <laughs> tops, drop it. Tops. Well, but like if they say in March, that gives them a beautiful window to have it come out in June. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess we see what happens. Maybe I'll see it. Maybe I'll check it out. Uh, we'll see. If you want to support this podcast and all the podcasts we do, patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. to Facebook and YouTube. Come hang out. We would love to chat with you about Marvel and Spider-Verse and anything else. Apple, Spotify, mm. Stitcher, or the app of your choice to subscribe, listen, and follow the show at Marvel Vision Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, comicbookclublive.com for this podcast and many more. Until next time, stay marvelous. I'm glitching. I'm glitching.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.